Hi there. Welcome to Volition. Volition is a series of interviews with people operating at the intersection of art, entrepreneurship, and intellectual production. In this episode, I had a discussion with Linda Lebrun. Linda has had a fascinating career, starting in the traditional finance world and now running writer recruitment for Substack. We discuss Substack and its role in helping writers achieve financial independence, the cultural divide between traditional investing and the world of tech, especially as illustrated by the choice of software tools, and the value of maintaining a private life online. I hope you enjoy this episode with Linda Lebrun. Given that you work at Substack, I thought that it might be appropriate uh, to start by asking you about some of the Substacks that you're subscribed to. Uh, in particular, I, I was kind of browsing through uh, your subscription list. I noticed you're subscribed to something called Smirk. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about what Smirk is? Yes, and I'm glad that you asked about that one. I ha- my, If anybody goes to my reader profile page on Substack, it's a mile long because I do subscribe to a lot of Substacks. And I want to say, if you see on that profile page, it says that I'm subscribed to something, I am paying out of my own pocket. In a handful of cases, there are people who give me comp subscriptions, but most of them, I don't have any kind of unlimited expense account because I work at Substack. I am actually eating my own cooking and paying for Substack. So if you see that I pay, I do. And Smirk is one of those. So the backstory of Smirk is that it is written by a journalist who used to work at Bloomberg named Christy Smythe. And she was covering the Martin Shkreli trial while that was going on a few years ago. And one thing led to another. She ended up having a romantic relationship with Martin Shkreli. And they're no longer together. But she um, wrote about him at the time contemporaneously. And then later on, she had very extensive knowledge and understanding of his whole story, all of the capital markets related issues around it, the pharmaceutical industry related issues around it, uh, the justice system and prison relationship. She wanted to write a book about that whole thing. And she couldn't find a publisher for the book because of the the things that had gone on in the story and her being really a character in the story, as well as the knowledgeable journalistic interpreter of the story. So it ended up being an ideal solution for her to come on Substack and she is doing the book on Substack and she's releasing it as a serial. And anybody who was paying attention to financial news during that whole time a few years ago, uh, when the trial was going on and uh, things that happened before and just Shkreli is a, a public figure over time, it's a great read that actually commits to the page some uh, historical facts and truth where there has been some distortion in the existing coverage. So she and anybody can go and read it. And, you know, if you if you whether you agree or disagree, if you are paying, you can read it and have access to it. And the important thing, you know, maybe the the message around Substack is she does not need an intermediary to give her permission to get her writing to an audience that is interested in it, which is me. She can publish it on Substack without having a gatekeeper approve of it. So I think I'm glad you asked about that one because I think it is a really good example of what people can do if they have a a book inside them or a story inside them and they cannot get some elite authority to rubber stamp and say, hey, we'll give you a conduit to provide this to the reader. That's that's an amazing story. And it, I, it must be perfect for the kind of serial format as well. Uh, that you can do with Substack. Um, that's 
that's really cool. I, you know, she may not have got the uh, book deal, but I sure hope she gets the movie uh, deal because that's that's an amazing story. Yes, it w- it would make an incredible movie, and I think that you know another example of somebody who's serializing on Substack is there's this technologist named Steven Sanoski, and he has a Substack called Hardcore Software. And if anybody is in- interested in the history of tech in the '90s, he worked at Microsoft in the '90s when th- things were being built, very dynamic time, and he. In that case, I mean, I think that he could probably, without too much trouble, get a book deal. He didn't want to do it that way. He's doing it on Substack. So I love the concept of we're almost going back into history where serialization and Charles Dickens, it was the normal way to get things out to the public. And now people can do it again. And it allows you to publish faster than hiding yourself in a garret for two years and then coming out with a full-blown product. You can actually publish as you go if you wish. Yeah, no, it's it's so cool. And I think it's also for a lot of people, um, at least I've heard from some people that the the act of committing to a newsletter mm-hmm. or committing to a podcast format and saying, well, I'm going to publish every week or biweekly or something like that. Maybe they have a book in them, but the idea of sitting down and writing the full length book, it's just, it's just way too much. It's overwhelming, but that kind of bite-sized weekly by weekly structure is, uh, is perfect for actually getting the work done as well. It's cool. So if I understand correctly, before you started working at Substack, you had a strong career in investing, uh, and you'd worked in a variety of different, in, uh, kind of environments with investing. Um, I'd love to know about a little bit more about why you made the change to Substack. For sure. And I think this might be interesting to some of the listeners to your podcast who are looking maybe for perspective on their own careers. My situation in the investment business was I was a CFA charter holder. I was a portfolio manager for many years. And the seven years before I started working at Substack, myself and a few partners had a business managing pools of money. We had a few different small cap long only strategies. So if anybody's you know, not into investing and doesn't know what that is, it's just you have a, a, a bunch of uh, money from institutions and high net worth families, and you are stock picking and uh, trying to allocate it appropriately and trying to beat an index. So there is much in the conventional investment industry that is like Groundhog Day, where every quarter you either beat the index or you didn't, and you write sort of a justification of yourself. And if you did, you pat yourself on the back at how you were right about everything and justified your existence for one more quarter. And if you didn't, you talk about how you're right and the market is wrong, but you're quite sure that next quarter will be different. So with the pandemic, I think that the pandemic for a lot of uh mid-career people, middle-aged people. It kind of made us sit back and reassess. And for me, here's the thing. the the uh, My job was a fun job in many ways. It certainly is great to be able to talk to public company managers and pepper them with questions and trying to figure out what is the business model of this company and which of these participants do we think is going to be successful. It is all a great intellectual game. But if you're starting to fatigue of it, it's better to leave and leave that seat for somebody else who's going to be more passionate, engaged with it, I think. And I was starting to get burnt out on it and it wasn't as fun anymore. And I think any job you can get burnt out and it's it's not as fun anymore. And part of that was I was looking at people who worked in the tech industry and I was noticing that their work 
was not Groundhog Day. They were in a process of building something and every day it would get a bit better and every day you would build something a bit more and make something better for the user and maybe solve a problem and, and make money by solving that problem, not by being one in this zero sum contest where I'm trying to be smarter than the next hundred guys who are trying to figure out how a quarter is gonna go. So I was attracted to do something in tech. And then, but again, what people are probably interested in as they listen to this is like, well, that's great that you have, you know, these feelings in your heart, but what did you actually do? So I didn't have any background in it. My undergraduate degree is in political science. So I didn't have any academic or knowledge base to say that, that to, you know, to hang my hat on to say that I can do anything useful. Um, Somebody once tweeted that there are only two things that you're doing if you work for a startup. You're either, either making the product or selling the product. So I knew which of those two things I would fall. I wouldn't be making the product, but maybe I could do something that was related to selling the product. And I worked in sales in various times in my life. And when you are a uh, when you're a portfolio manager and you're trying to gather assets, there's a huge. We should we could have a whole separate conversation about how much of a sales role that is. So I started to go to tech-related events here in Toronto. We're very lucky to live in the city of Toronto where there's a, a, a burgeoning uh, culture of, before the pandemic, there were lots of events you could go to. I would go to TechTO events. The, the TechTO events were awesome because you'd be sitting there in this huge auditorium of people and uh, they would make you meet the person on your left and on your right and you'd have to give them your elevator pitch and why are you there? And then you have to at each other on LinkedIn. Ah, oh, it's, you know, it's so terrible and scary, but then you actually do start to figure out what is going on, who's hiring. And then I also just use the discipline that you always use when you're trying to break into something from the outside, which is cold outreach. I figured out some tech companies that were in Toronto and people are very kind. You know, if you reach out, I'm not going to say that sending a cold LinkedIn message is going to lead to success 100% of the time or even 50%. But if you send a bunch and the person who replies to you, there's a higher chance that that person is going to get something useful out of it and you're going to get something useful out of it just by definition. You go into that with some you know, good questions and with the idea of bringing value as, as well as taking value. So I was trying to network into it. And then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up the rest in a few sentences here because it's not meant to be a life story. The way that I ended up at Substack was I knew a couple of people who had investment industry backgrounds and knowledge, and they'd started publishing on logging on Substack and they turned on paid and they were making lifestyle incomes pretty fast. I thought that's very exciting. They probably have a long way that they can go to expand into that financial investing, capital markets, people writing about economics, crypto options, and maybe I could be part of that. So I reached out to one of the founders of Substack and was just able to, you know, pitch, should we, could we do something together? That led to a few conversations. And I started working there in um, March, 2021. And I was, uh, there were about 30 people at Substack uh, when I joined. So it was not, not the earliest of the early, but relatively early. Very cool. And so you obviously had some idea of what tech and uh, kind of being an operator was going to be like uh, before you before you joined Substack, and you've now been there a, a bit over a year. Uh, so, has that year validated your beliefs around kind of how that change would uh, transform your day to day work, or have you learned new things? Like, wh what has been your experience there? I would say I had no idea about anything, and it's been constant surprise. Like whatever I would have conceptualized in my mind coming from 
remember, I didn't just go from finance to tech. I went from very traditional Bay Street, wood paneled room, mostly working with baby boomer aged people, investment business to a tech startup based in San Francisco. I'm one of the oldest people who works there, everything very online, 100% remote, using Slack all the time every day. Like it's, it's, it's been massive cultural change, but I will tell you, it, it does, it feels good when you are forced to figure out new things, when you're dropped into what is like, people are going to think I'm exaggerating, but it really is just, it's, it's so culturally different. And it would be the same thing if somebody had worked in tech startups all their life and then went to work at, you know, Kansas City office of Wells Fargo serving high net worth families there. You know, it's, it, you're going into just a different milieu with different rules, different ways of communicating, very much different tools. And I, I feel like I, you had to somewhat figure out how to use a new piece of software every day for the past 18 months. <laughs> but you know what? You do it. You, you, you figure it out. So I would say I uh, really had no idea what I was getting into, but it also has like, I don't, you can tell from even just what I've said about my career, I don't really stick around in things that aren't fun. It has been really fun. And the best part about it, this is going to sound like pro Substack propaganda, but the colleagues have been very, um, just uh, brilliant and highly strategic and great people to get to know. So that's, that's what it totally sounds like great places to work, but that really has, that has been the best part. And, and like I said, an unexpected uh, part of it. I empathize with that a lot. I think the, the experience of a new tool every day though, is that's a, that's a classic. Yeah. And I mean, I, it, it's what it feels like, like to, to a degree I'm exaggerating and people would probably be like, well, Slack isn't that hard to use, but it's, it's more just that you have to be in this environment. You do have to be ready to just try and figure out how to use, what else can I use for an example? I mean, I think that there is an age divide where there's a dividing line and the people younger than that are very, very, if they're, if they're digital natives are very comfortable with Google docs and the people older than that are very comfortable with, with the Microsoft office environment. And I, I, I saw a funny tweet where somebody, a younger person was, he had just gotten a new job and he's like, oh my gosh, I had to figure out Word and use all these Microsoft Office things because to him, figuring out the, and working with that file structure is probably so alien because, well, what, since he was in high school, he's been working on the, because Google is so smart and gives all of their uh, software to high schools for free. <laughs> so there's that. And we could think of other examples like that, where there's just a, a, a digital divide between how people communicate. And it isn't really a, a bright line at a given age whatsoever. I could tell you there have been many people who my job at, at Substack, the, the core of it is reaching out to people who we think would be good on Substack and getting them to start and launch on Substack and giving them the tools and best practices that would help them be very successful. So in a lot of cases, I am proactively reaching out to somebody who may be writing elsewhere on the internet. And a lot of the cases, those people may be older people. They might be 65 years old and they are having a great time writing to their Facebook group. Well, you and I both know uh, Facebook might debate with us, but it's probably going to be a better experience for them if they take whatever they are doing on Facebook, where it's just a malay, they can't monetize it. Uh, you know, people half the time don't even see if they choose to follow their Facebook post, they won't even see it. It's probably better for that person to think about coming over and making a Substack. And I've had cases like that where somebody in that age group starting on Substack just absolutely took to it like fish to water and no problems whatsoever. So that I just say that to emphasize that by no means is figuring out stuff technically 
going to be a cross-reference to your age. And by the same token, somebody might be 25 years old and they just did not have the opportunity to, or the interest to be embedded in tech. But if you go into a job where you're expected to use all these tools, it will put you at a a considerable disadvantage uh, if you you don't uh, make a concerted effort to figure it out. Absolutely. I think that uh, I was thinking about this a little bit in relation to the Figma acquisition mm. by, uh, by Adobe that you know, there's a lot of people who think that Adobe is, is the be all and end all of design tools. The customizability of the Adobe suite is kind of beyond belief. It's actually, it's an incredible product that they've been able to produce. However, there's this younger generation of designers who have often started their entire careers on Figma and they look at Adobe and they're like, oh, it's, it's so over tool that's so complicated it's so difficult and so they you know, there is this theory that like oh they bought figma they're going to ruin it something like that but i think it is it is it does say much more about there's this cross-generational distaste for learning new tools especially <laughs> when they are just slightly adjacent to a tool that you feel is good enough for that purpose right now um but i think as you as you point out it's important nonetheless because tools are this this crucial element of culture they mm-hmm. they describe and uh help to define the culture of a company i think and and actually the question about that i'm kind of tying back to this question i want to ask you which is you know it sounds like you know you think that uh corporate culture is is pretty important i think you've talked about it um at uh, substack and i also heard you on another podcast mm. talking about it in the context of small cap investment um, and so I'd love to know, you know, why do you think corporate culture is uh, so important? So uh, uh, before I get into that, I just want to say that's that I like the way you put that, that it's an element of culture, the, the different pieces of, of technology that we use. And an example of that, and people do get sclerotic about, I'm not going to use this new tool because of what I'm using is just fine. And there are people today using Blogspot or stuck in something that is, it's it's not supported, it's not the best, but you until you, unless you can force yourself to, you can try the new thing and reject the new thing, sure. But for example, if, if I said, well, I'm not going to use TikTok because I just read on the internet that it's just, uh, it's for kids, so forget it, it's not for me. That, I'm never going to really understand what it is. And what if the writers that I work with, I find that some of them are using TikTok and that's helping them to promote their Substack. I'm not going to have a good sense of what's going on. It's going to pass me by. So there's there's some of this like, you know, you're like Grandpa Simpson where you feel like the, the world moved on without you unless you make an effort to keep up. And when you work with a lot of young people, it is easier because you can just listen to what they are doing and, and take suggestions uh, from them. So to talk about this culture issue though, the my favorite writer on culture is uh, Ben Horowitz, who uh, wrote a number of uh, books about corporate culture, how to structure a company. And um, he talks about how corporate culture is about what you what you do and what you don't do. And I think people think that it is that there's a right way to do it. And sometimes they'll think it's kind of this is kind of like advice. Like if I gave you the advice to always be honest and be respectful of others and, and, you know, show respect to others at work, that's not it's not interesting advice because no one would advise you the opposite. The only thing that becomes interesting is if we if it is controversial in some way where you you there is a disagreement about what's what's right and wrong. The example that Horowitz uses is 
your corporate culture might be, okay, when, if uh, Linda flies to Paris to recruit a writer, is she going to stay at the uh, Holiday Inn or is she going to stay at the Ritz? And people always think that they know the right answer. They always oh, the Holiday, the cheaper one, that's the right answer, isn't it? Well, maybe not. If she needs to get a good night's sleep and she's going to wake up the following morning and meet some Nobel Prize winning writer, maybe the best thing to do is to, you know, have a, a first class flight. So the point is, and that just sounds self-serving, like I want to stay at the Ritz, but the point is, you've. Ha I think culture is what you grapple with and make decisions. It's not just like a successories post that's a dated reference. It's not, it's not just like a poster in your office that's saying teamwork makes the dream work. It's actually making tough decisions about allocation of resources and allocation of attention, which brings us back to investing because that is the central job of a CEO. CEO's central job is not anything in the weeds operational. He or she should be delegating that. It's but the capital allocation is critical, critical, critical thing. And so I think with any, any leader uh, doing those sorts of thinking through those sorts of trade-offs and then making tough decisions about those trade-offs, I think is what shapes corporate culture. Now I'm saying all this, I'm an individual a contributor at Substack, to be clear. I was a manager in my last job, so I have some experience of, my manage of being in management, but I'm not an entrepreneur. So any theory that I have about entrepreneurs and how they behave um, is totally from the peanut gallery. I guess then, uh, with your view from the peanut gallery, how would you describe Substack's culture in particular, given this importance? And what makes Substack unique? Oh, this is this is such a good question. I would love to ask ten of my colleagues this question and see what they would say about it. And I think sometimes I think certain things are tech culture because I am naive of, I haven't worked in tech for my whole career. I've only worked at one tech company. So I'll, I'll think certain things, oh, this is how tech people are. And that could be just delusional. And this is just how this one company is. So I'll just talk about this one company. But I, I one thing, I think I, I'm not telling any tales out of school to reveal this because I think this is a trait of well-run startups in general, is a, a very keen and pointed experimental attitude, which is, and coming from traditional investment business, there's a lot of seat of the pants, rule of thumb, gut feeling that would go on. And really the modern way to do things is not to do that. You don't work on instincts because our instincts can fool us all the time. Uh, I'll give an example. So I remember when I first came to a, a Substack, some writers gave me feedback and the initial screen that comes up when you go to a Substack for the first time, it's a welcome page. And it's very uh, clean and simple. It doesn't have a lot on it. It, it. In some cases, if you have other people who have written blurbs about your publication, there might be some blurbs that are sort of serving as social proof, but there's not a lot of ornamentation on it. And some writers would complain and they'd say, I want to be able to have, you know, scrolling ticker or to be able to have more pictures. I want my best three, I want more on the welcome page. I want to control the welcome page and have more on it. And I remember I went back and I was like, why does the welcome page look like this? Well, of course, it, the three years that they were building Substack before I got there, they extensively down to the floorboards, AB tested what the welcome page ought to look like. And this was what performed best. And what we might think performs best must be tested against reality and tested against uh, uh, contact with the user, the writer, the reader, and to figure out what works from an So I would, I would just say that ment the mentality of you don't have somebody who's like a God King and, oh, he has amazing taste and whatever he says goes. It's more like if he has great taste, we're going to take what he thinks 
and we might take what this other person thinks or maybe take what Linda thinks and figure out an appropriate experimentation structure, which is also a craft. It's not an easy thing to do to figure out the right experiment. And then we will interpret the results. And again, it's not it's so easy to, again, this is all very, very, um, there, there is a, um, a prior art in all this. So this was all very, very new to me, very new to me. So I, this was a, an, an element of corporate culture that, and I, I say that it's corporate culture because it goes, it runs all the way through everything you do if the people at the top have this mentality. And I think for our company that that's the case. To switch gears slightly, um, I, I've heard you describe yourself as a company evangelist. Uh, and you know, obviously you're going out and talking to people, you're reaching out to people all the time. Uh, and so I think it makes sense in that context. But the, the phrase company evangelist also made me think of Alex Danko at Shopify, mm. um, Anna Lorena Fabrega at Synthesis School, Patio 11 um, at Stripe. And there seems to be something with these this role, this evangelist role that, that brings something slightly slightly more than kind of marketing to it. It's slightly more than a sales and, and marketing perspective. So, um, you know, what do you think a good company evangelist looks like? I th the comparison is flattering when you mentioned Patio 11 and Alex Danko, because I'm, I'm uh, fans of both of them. I think as an evangelist, what I think what people see in terms of somebody who's evangelizing the company, they might see them tweeting, they might see them going on podcasts, but there is a very important, I talked about experimentation and things being quantified and measurable. There is a part that you may not see, which is doing cold outreach and trying to, if somebody is a prospect who would be absolutely gangbusters on Substack, to actually reach out to them personally and not in the form of a, of a form letter, but a specific, you know, I have read your book. I have listened to this interview with you. Here are the reasons why I think it would work for you to be on Substack. Here are why my theory about why it might fit into your life. But I, I you know, you come humbly and say, I don't really know if it would work for you, uh, but but I think maybe it would. And can we talk about it? So while you might see this this sort of public face of evangelism with the people who that is their nine to five, I think a, a lot of it is behind the scenes, making sure you again, like sound total MBA cliche, but like you're moving the boat forward every day. It's not just, okay, I, you know, I, I, I did a bunch of tweets and I uh, made a post and that's that. It really is, it, it, what is the piece when you are building that doesn't scale is the individual one-on-one -on -one with, with people who have to make a decision. If you're in a conventional sales role, it, it, nothing happens until somebody takes out their wallet and pays, or they, they say, okay, our, our company will go ahead and buy 10 seats of this software as a service. Something like this is very, something like Substack is very different because it's not, it's not a sale. It's when we are going out and trying to explain what it is to people so they can think about whether it might make sense to, to, for them to set up an online publication that has some paywall gated content and provides a subscription based revenue for them. They have to think, you know, is that a fit for me or how can I fit into that structure? What is it, what are the pain points of my current publishing that that could solve? Or if it's not something, you know, a lot of the time I will talk to people and they already have a number of other ways that they make money. Uh, it's all very well for me to say Substack is free. If your content is free, we only get paid when you do. For them, the more meaningful cost is opportunity cost. They've got to decide if they do a Substack and that's one less, if they're doing a few YouTube videos a week, 
I think they'd, it would be great for them to start a Substack because then they can start to end run around the platform and gather email addresses. But they have to consider, well, the algo is going to punish me if I don't do as many uh, YouTube videos. So maybe it's not worth my time. So Evangelist, I think it, it, it gets into both maybe having some kind of uh, public facing, you know, if we do a podcast like this, it gives me the chance to talk about Substack. But a really important thing is just the non-scaling part when you're fairly new in the game to try to get people to come one by one. I always think of Lenny Rachitsky, who is on Substack now. Uh, he has a great post where he talks about some of the great tech companies of recent years and the things they did that didn't scale, like Airbnb, when they went door to door handing out flyers in New York saying, would you like to turn your house into a hotel? Or Uber, when they went to the BART station and they, again, handing out flyers, just trying to get people to be one of the first people to go and get a, a ride in a car from a stranger you don't know. I mean, these ideas seem crazy, but they had to, they had to do some hand-to-hand -hand combat. So I think evangelism might be uh, partly you know, trying to get out in any way you can the message, but also a lot of it is just talking to individual people. Like I guarantee there's going to be someone who listens to this and is like, maybe I should start a podcast and they're going to send me a DM on Twitter and we'll get in a conversation and hopefully they will. So I think that's, um, that's a lot of it. And that is the thing that makes work very interesting because you never know what the next conversation is going to be. So one thing that's interesting to me about this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat that you're describing is it sounds like it's halfway between a sales pitch and an interview. Um, you're trying to, you know, if you've got a full sales pitch and you've got like a deep script, then you kind of run through it, maybe making modifications here and there. Um, and then you have, and you have the other end of kind of like, there's uh, kind of basically customer interviews where you're just trying to understand something from the person you're speaking to. Um, and so when you're evangelist, you have this mission statement that you're trying to get out there, the message that you're trying to get out there, but you're constantly also receiving feedback from all of these people that you're talking to. And so does any part of your role it, from that angle also involve kind of the, a modification of that mission statement or trying to, or maybe a, re, a refining of what that mission statement is? I would say that there is a, an interplay between what Substack's user base of writers want from it and what Substack's roadmap is. And this is how any consumer facing tech company would be. So for the people on my team who are doing writer development, writer recruitment, the information and feedback that we get from prospective writers and existing writers on Substack, I think is the most powerful input that the product team can have as to where we should go next. Of course, we don't just prioritize based on, okay, if enough people have asked for something, we do it. It still has to be the underlying mission that was set when the founders started the company five years ago. I think that doesn't change. Uh, so we wouldn't, I'm just trying to think of an example of, of something we would not do. Like we would not, okay. So sometimes when I'm talking to a prospect, they'll say, I have a blog. So what I'd like to do is have, have the Substack, and I just want my Substack post to be a frame within my existing blog. Would you guys build that? Can you guys do that? So the question of, is that technically possible? Of course, yeah, yeah, it would, it would be technically possible, but it's not what we're going to do. It works much better for Substack if 
you have everything as a self-contained unit on your Substack. That is where you collect the email addresses. That is where your posts live. And the reason for that is the entire raison d'etre of a Substack is to have some things behind the paywall. And the whole system works much better with the ability to send out emails and have a post on the same place, have a, a free preview of a paid post, have lots of subscribe buttons you're dropping. It works much better if it is all on the one place. It's, this is not, some people will say, oh, that's just self-interested. Substack wants to, to drive all the, the traffic to themselves. It really just does work better. And we never sought to be a tool that would fit into WordPress. There are many, many tools that fit into WordPress. That's a crowded market. We were trying to solve a problem that hadn't been solved before. So that's an example of where that's feedback that I've gotten more than once, but hopefully I can give the same answer I've just provided here. And some people will say, okay, well, I love WordPress. That's not for me. I'm going to stick with what I've got. I'm not too concerned. The other thing is there's an interaction where the writers and the people who use Substack are the best advertisement for it as well. So they are often making posts about, well, this is why I prefer, like one writer wrote a post and he said, I wish everybody would just come on Substack because he was, he's a, he was a, a blogger for a long time. And he said, most bloggers don't realize how much better it is when the whole experience is centered around capturing the email address. It's, it's much better to have that front and center and always be urging people to get the email because once you're in the email inbox, it's, it's very intimate. Uh, they never miss a post from you. And it's way better than having a blog that just has a enter your email here box over on the side. So a post like that, I'll save that post. I'll send that to people who are thinking about it and say way more than me who works there, just trying to sell them on it. It, somebody who's actually walked the path and has uh, had the experience of being a writer and developing an audience and choosing the best tool, which is an important decision, um, they're, they have decided that it's better and they, they make the argument why they think it's better. So I'd say, yeah, but just go, to go back to your original question, I would say that we are always gathering information from what, what users want to see and that heavily, heavily, it has heavily shaped the roadmap over the past year. If you look at the fact that our podcasting features have, have gotten just miles better than they used to be, that's heavily related to what people have been asking us for, for example. That makes, that makes total sense. So it's kind of, uh, you know, the mission never changes, but the uh, ways of articulating that mission, both in terms of how you talk to people about it and in terms of the product itself is in this kind of constant uh, feedback. Yeah. Thing. Uh, that makes sense. The, mission, the mission of Substack is to create a better future for writers by letting them achieve financial independence by publishing and having a direct relationship with the reader. That what I just said, that that won't change and can't change, but how we actually affect that, uh, it, it looks very different today than it did five years ago, but that, that kernel of that reason for Substack existing uh, remains. So it's very easy for me to tell people, for example, if I'm talking to someone and they say, well, I have my email list, I'm never going to have paid content on my email list. What I use it for is just to market my merchandise line and I sell swag and that's how I make money. But I know I'm never going to, to, to turn on paid on the newsletter itself. It's just, it's just to, to market the swag. I know for sure that I can say to them, Substack is not the right place for you. You, you know, we, if you want to be technical and don't have product market fit. If you want to just be practical, there, you should probably be on MailChimp. MailChimp is really optimized for e-commerce. Substack, because of what I said about what the mission is, it wouldn't make sense for us to optimize for e-commerce. Might we build e-commerce features at some point if enough writers want it? Could be, yeah, maybe, but it will never be optimized for that because it's always optimized for the independence of writers 
you know, being on their own, building a platform on their own online. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so I have one last question a little bit, uh, I, I, you know, maybe this doesn't go anywhere, but you have a, uh, Twitter account where you're very active, uh, Linda at Substack. Uh, I've really enjoyed in preparation for this, uh, interview going into your tweet replies oh, so uh, and seeing you in, in, interact with, um, a bunch of people. I, I saw, for instance, there were, uh, you seem to be trying to convince, uh, Visa for a long time to get onto Substack. Oh, you dug back into the archives. Wow, you scrolled. Yes, I, and he has one, by the way, but I just don't think he's posting actively on it. I just, of course, he'd be wonderful. He has this huge following. He's a wonderful writer. Yeah, I, well, I, so I was going to ask, because I know he has one now, if you, if you know if you were the reason he, fi uh, he finally got convinced to sign up. I am not the reason for anything that happens. People decide whether they want to do a Substack. It, I, I just, I, I, I think, I think that he knew, look, he is on Twitter. He's highly connected. He knew that Substack existed. Sometimes, go back to the being an evangelist thing. Sometimes the, the role of the evangelist might just to be that person who says, you know, I think it would work for you if you did this, because I've seen other people like you for whom it has worked. That might be the piece that's missing because people might not know. Oh, you know, I'm, I think I might want to do a Substack about golf, but I don't think there are any Substacks about golf, so it probably won't work. Well, I could probably say, here are th three Substacks about golf. Or if there isn't one, I would say, you have the chance to be a category creator. Here are some other people who were the first ones to write about something. And by being the innovator, they succeeded. So I think a lot of the time is just to, to say to people, you, you know, you're coming as a putative authority, I can say, well, I work there and I, I think it would work for you. That works better if you're being honest and sincere. You can't just say to everybody, it'll work for you and that, you know, you're going to get the reputation as a blowhard. But if you, if it's somebody like Visa and I can, VisaCon, and I can actually say, given your, your personal style, your writing background, I mean, it would, it would be a slam dunk. So a good use of Twitter can be to uh, encourage people to, to DM people or just to, to also to be there where if somebody has a question, they could feel like, hey, that's somebody who's approachable. Uh, and I think platforms like Twitter, Facebook, they don't really have people that you can reach out to. So as, as, a, as a startup, that should be something where we can develop an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I think it is it provides a personality for the company in a way that a company like Facebook can't, you know, even if, uh, actually, I guess I take that back. I think that companies like Shopify and Stripe have managed to yeah, manage this surprisingly well. Uh, but so, there was a certain, you know, that first, uh, wave of kind of like the Facebooks, the Twitters of the world, they never, they never quite got it, but it's, no, it is amazing. But what I want to ask you is, this uh, this Twitter seems pretty optimized around Substack. You've got Linda at Substack yes. is your name. You've got uh, it, all of the tweets seem to be about Substack. Um, do you did you have or do you have uh, a Twitter account that you uh, used prior to this one? Uh, and if so, uh, what was that like? What did you use Twitter for? I had. I, I'm just interested. I've always had a number of Twitter accounts. I enjoy Twitter. If you look at my Twitter, you can tell it's not somebody who their first day using Twitter was when they made that account. Yeah. So I have a number of accounts, which I won't disclose on this uh, a podcast, partly because I really feel like everybody has the right to have an online life 
that is aside from their work. And this is a controversial idea now, okay? Somebody, some wag uh, quipped that we're the first generation who can be fired for something we do on the weekend. It's at the point now where any utterance of anybody, if it has their real name attached, is considered to be a, a formal statement of whatever corporate body they're employed by, which I think is nuts. People should be able to have a, a, a private life. So, and also we, all of us have many identities. You may have your account where you talk to your friends. You may have your account where you talk about your political views that some of your friends might not totally agree with. So you, you don't necessarily want to bother them with it, etc. So I, for sure, I love social media. Look, I've been posting online since PHPBB bulletin board days. Anybody who's listening, who's over 40, <laughs> that's going to ring a bell. But I would say Gen X age people, my age people were the, were the, the, the last people who remember a time before the internet and then a time with the internet. I think millennials, that most millennials, they had like a Facebook page when they were very, very young or they had an email address very young. But I think that Gen X is the people who like, we were still unfolding a paper map when we were teenagers. And then, uh, um, you know, we segued into this world of everything being online. For some are cynical about it and feel like something was lost, but there's others like me who think that it's a, a huge innovation, very helpful, uh, alleviated a lot of inconvenience from the world and opened up audiences to people. So that might sound like super Pollyanna, but that is how I, how I feel about it. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's wonderful to hear. Um, thank you so thank much you, ben. for great conversation. No, this, I mean, I, I feel very lucky. I feel really, really lucky that, uh, you, uh, would, you know, give this time and, um, it's been, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Let me, because I would be remiss not to end with a plug. So anybody listening, if you want to start a Substack, just go to substack.com, click on create your Substack. It's very easy. You don't need to talk to me to do it. You don't need anybody's permission and you can start posting. And Ben has himself has a Substack too. Say the URL of your Substack. Uh, it's benparry.substack.com. Very easy to remember. So join us, join the fun on Substack, please. That was my little commercial <laughs> sponsorship that I wanted to finish off with. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank Sandra. you, Ben. Thank <laughs> you.